0: Last week, we started this journey uh, talking about learning to lead like Jesus, learning how to increase our, our leadership. And I said last week that leadership is simply influence. Leadership is learning how can I influence somebody else towards my thoughts, through my ideals. To, through to influencing people to do things that I think are important. And what we said was, as the church, we should want to lead, lead people or influence people towards Jesus Christ, that they would know Jesus and be growing in Jesus. And so when we're talking about leadership, when we, when we break that down, really all of us in this room are leaders. Today we're going to talk about how there's some different levels or different positions of leadership, but all of us have a chance to lead. Whether it's a husband leading a wife or a wife leading a husband, whether it's mom and dad leading your kids, whether it's you leading a coworker, whether you are in a position of leadership by title, but all of us have a chance to lead or influence somebody towards Jesus Christ. And so, in order to do that, we need to understand. How does Jesus do that? We'll look at Jesus as our prime example and say, if that's how Jesus did that, maybe I can glean some stuff from him and understand what he did because if we are in Christ and we want to do things the way Jesus did things. So Mark chapter 10 is where we're at today. As we look at this account today, it's very interesting. Two of Jesus' closest disciples, James and John, came to him requesting positions of prominence in the kingdom of God. We're going to learn a lot about the way Jesus handles leadership and teaches them in his response. Look at the text, verse 35. Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. You, You see what's taking place right here real quick? James and John two of the disciples come and said we want to be first The selfish nature is taking over. They want to be in first place. So, in glory, Jesus, let us sit in your right and left. And they understand kingship because of their culture. And a king would always have some other leaders, one sitting on the right and one sitting on the left. And they're struggling with selfishness like Jesus. Hey, there's these 12 other disciples, but we want to be number one and number two, or kind of tie for number one by being in your right hand and left hand because selfishness is taking over. We see that in our society. We see it in us sometimes. We see it in our society when you just look at little children. How many children just want to be first? I want to be first. I want to be first. Mom, I want to be first. Dad, I want to be first. Some of you that are school teachers are getting ready to head back to school right now, and you understand that. You're trying to line up the children. They all have to be the first one in line. You're going to go to the lunch line. They all want to be the first one. Or they want to be the first one whenever supplies are handed out. And it's a me first mentality, and all of us have that inside of us. We want to be first. Teenagers, talk to them first service. Her mom's in the womb. Have that desire to be first, don't they? I mean, everything. They get jealous if someone else gets higher grades. Most of them. They get jealous if someone else scored higher on the ACT. What was your ACT score? Mine was a 22. <laughs> Mine was a 32. You know, they want to be first. They want to win the game. And, and, and that's, that's a very normal part of life as we battle with this selfishness. And some teenagers, if they struggle in the grades, they can't win that way. That's why sometimes they go and they dress crazy and behave crazy and weird because they want attention. They want to be known and always have the desire to kind of be first. We see that same drive for preeminence in adults. Look at the athletic world. It's a competition of who's most important, who's the highest one. Take notice of, of office politics. Take notice of what's going on, of how can I move up the corporate ladder? How can I get recognized? How can I get the raise? How can I beat out this person? And you see it all the time. And James and John came to Jesus asking for positions of prominence and a request shouldn't really shock us maybe surprise us a little bit because James and John were so open about it, you would have thought they would have said, hey, Jesus, can we talk to you for a minute quietly over here on the side? Jesus, we really have this thing we got to ask you about. Jesus, we've really been thinking a lot about this. Now, if it was in church and you guys were coming to me, you would come to me and you'd say, Pastor, we've been praying and God told me. Because <laughs> that's what you all do. And then I can't argue with you going, did he really? They would have said, Jesus, your dad told us to come talk to you. But that's not what they did. They blurted it right out. Hey, Jesus, do something for me. Could you imagine going to Jesus, just being that bold? Jesus, something for me. What do you want me to do for you? We want to sit at your right hand. We want to sit at your left hand. They were not embarrassed. They they said, "Grant this to me, that we can sit by your side." It's interesting, though. In Matthew's gospel, in this same account, it ties in that not only did James and John make the request, but also their mother, mom, got involved in the picture. Helicopter parenting right here in the first century. Moms were involved. And mom goes, the text says, mom goes and says, grant these my sons can sit at your side in the coming kingdom. I could imagine her. Hey, you know those other disciples? They're okay. But James and John, my boys now, they're they're top notch. Jesus, listen to me here. They're really good. Kind of like the mom or dad going, why is my kid not playing much? My kid can hit a baseball just as good as Johnny can. My kid is faster than just, my kid's the best. He should get more playing. We'd never do that, though, would we? That's what she was doing right here. She's going to Jesus and speaking up for James and John and saying, hey, they're really good here. Make sure they're sitting at the right hand and left hand of you in glory. And look what Jesus answers to James and John and her mother. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Jesus says, I don't make this decision. This is my Father's decision. But there's two leadership principles that Jesus teaches here. First of all, he's trying to point out to them, listen, leadership is almost always a lot tougher than we think it's going to be because they're coming and asking for a place of leadership. And Jesus is saying, listen, can you really do this? Can you really handle it? you build a able to drink from the cup. And he's not talking about a physical cup. Can you really take on what I'm going to be taking on? And the disciples seem to have forgotten what Jesus just told them a few verses earlier. We look at verse 33, and it says, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and a son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. He says, are you ready to go through the torture and the turmoil that I'm going to go through? He's. I don't know if you really understand what you're asking. Jesus' leadership role involves opposition and arrest and scourging and crucifixion. And he's like, are you really ready to drink from this cup? Are you ready to walk in my shoes with me? Now see, what we do in America is we have a tendency to see other people's job as, as glamour moments. We tend to look at other roles and go, man, I wish I could have what they have, and we don't see the struggle or the difficulty behind the scenes. I mean, we probably all have done it at some point or another. We see a doctor and we go, man, those doctors, man, they have nice houses, they make good money. Man, look at the doctor's life. I want to have a doctor's life. But we don't see what's behind that. We don't see the medical school and the number of years of medical school and many of them the pile up d- debts. We don't see the late night phone calls or the text messages that they get. We don't see their failures and their frustrations. We don't see when the doctors are with the patient who's going through something really hard and they're losing sleep for their patients. We don't see all that. We just see, oh, look at that doctor. He has a place of prominence, a place of influence, and I want what he or she has. Or you think about a coach who wins the championship, We say, man, I'd be great to be on that team and me being the leader of that. I want to be that coach who's leading to win a championship. But we don't see the late-night film study. We we don't see the balancing of how do we put the players in the right position. We don't see the sacrifice away from family to go on another trip, to coach another practice, to go through another routine. We don't see all the internal issues. We don't see the one-on-ones that the coaches have to do to help out a young person as they're working through life's issues. We don't see all that. We don't see the coach and what's going on inside of his soul every time he loses. He's being eaten apart by losing something. We just see, oh championship, I I want to be part of that. Kind of miss that. We, we see a CEO, someone running a company, making a great salary, having all the accolades. We go, man, that'd be really cool to have my own company, be able to run the company, be in charge of the company. But we don't see sleepless nights as they're wrestling with heavy decisions. We don't see the pressure to succeed because shareholders are nipping at their heels going, what are you doing for me? What are you doing for me? I got to make money. We don't see when the percentage just drops 1% or 2 or 3% in their business and everyone's freaking out and they feel the pressure that's upon them. James and John, that's what they're looking at. Look at Jesus. Oh, he has this prominent place. Look at he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, he's going to be the Savior. Leadership is much more difficult than we can ever imagine. And a long-term leader has to have a mindset and think long-term And that applies to us if we're in a marriage and we say, you know, the person I'm leading as I'm working to lead my husband or wife. Or the people I'm leading are my children. Many times, what do we do? We say, oh, I can't wait to get married. And that's what happens many times. You're young, looking forward and going, I can't wait to get married. Oh, that's going to be so exciting to get married. Oh, I can't wait for that to happen. And you get married and a couple years down the road, you're going, what am I doing to myself? This is so stinking hard. She's trying to influence me this way. I'm trying to influence her this way. How do we work at this together? And then we see people with kids and go, those kids are so cute and they're so special and i got to have one. Yeah. And then you're going, wait a minute. This parenting thing, this is tough work. i got to raise these children in Jesus and this is hard and it's difficult. And I wish I could return them and get a refund. We've all been there, right? <laughs> Some of you are there right now. It's challenging to parent. Let me encourage you parents. I had a conversation this week with somebody who was really struggling with a parenting issue. As we're heading back to school, encourage your parents. make this is an encouragement to teachers and administrators. You got a parent for the long term. That's leadership in the home you got to be thinking long-term. Right now, in the here and now, they're pulling their hair out. They're doing crazy things. Maybe they're messing with things you are not supposed to be messing with. They're dressing weird. They're acting weird. They're talking weird. And you're thinking, how am I going to raise this child? And I'm a failure. And how often this is? You're thinking, not for now. You're thinking, what are they going to be like when they're 20 and 25 and 30 and 35 and 50 and 75 that you want to walk in Jesus? And so right now, it may be stinking difficult. But leadership that influences people towards Jesus Christ, especially our young people, you have to have a long-term perspective. You're in a war right now for the souls of your children. And Satan's coming after our kids left and right in every which way he can. And Ephesians tells us that we're in a battle against the principalities of this world, and you're in a battle for your children's soul. And so his leadership says, I don't give up on my kids. And you parent for the long term. Let me speak to those in marriages that are struggling right now. Because stats would tell me about 50% of you in here are probably struggling at some level. And some of you have some really deep seated struggles. When you entered into marriage and you said, This marriage is for life, make it for life. Make it for life. Don't lead for the here and now. Don't lead for what's happening right now. She's doing this to me. He's doing that to me. He said this. She said that. You know what? Yes, that's going to happen. But think about the long term, what it means when you keep a marriage together and you get more and more focused on Jesus. And what is that going to do to your children's future, to your grandchildren's future? What's it going to do to your health? What's it going to do long term? What's it going to do just for eternity when you say, we stay in this marriage and sickness and in hell? But many times what we do, we think about right now. She's doing this, he's doing that. I'm done. I'm checking out of this world. Again, you're in a battle. We're in a battle with Satan himself, the principalities of the world, who wants to destroy another marriage. And when you lead, you lead for the long term. Teachers and administrators, it's tough stinking work you're going back to this week. Really tough. And I know a lot of teachers who are throwing in a towel and say, I am done with this. I'm done with the political bureaucracy. I'm done with the hassle. I'm done with the difficulties. Leave for long term. Have the mindset that, you know what? God, you've got me planted right here, right now, that I can influence some some children in the love of Jesus so that one day maybe they'll know Jesus. One day maybe there'll be a conversation with a student that will be on the side because obviously I know you can't stand up in a classroom and say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. But on the side when that kid comes to you and says, I need your help. You teach and you invest for the long term, and so it's difficult. It may look great on the outside, but when you desire positions, realize that leadership is tough. And a Christ-like leader is mentally tough in the face of adversity. And Jesus was pointing out, James, John, listen, you want this? This is hard stuff. Secondly, you've got to understand that leadership is a God-ordained call. Mark 8 says, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left not, is not for me to grant. These places belong to for those whom they have been prepared by my Father. He says, God ordains this. I believe that God ordains marriages. God ordains us to be parents. God ordains our jobs when he opens up a job. Did God provide that for you or did you make it happen on your own? Now, it depends if you look at this world from the perspective of your eyes or from God's eyes. If you are look at the perspective from God's eyes, when God has given you a job, God has ordained that position for you. He's ordained that position for you to then carry out the work of ministry. Notice Jesus didn't say that no one should desire to lead. That's not what he said. He didn't say it's wrong that that you'd want a a place of prominence. That's not what he said. We're all going to be equal in God's kingdom. No, he said these places belong for those whom they have been prepared by my Father. And so he's saying, listen, you're desiring some leadership here, James and John, but listen, God's the one that decides where he places you. God's the one that decides if he gives you a different kind of title, if he moves you up the corporate ladder, if he puts you as a president of the company or whatever it is. That's all in God's hands. God ordains some people for some greater leadership roles because different gifts. And God polishes some of the gifts in some of us and proves us to be leaders and puts us in those positions of leadership for his purposes and for his kingdom. An example of this is Joseph in the Old Testament. When Pharaoh offered Joseph the position as the second most powerful man in Egypt, he willingly accepted the role. Now, in Joseph's setting... Joseph could have refused it. He could have said, well, I'm not sure that I'm qualified for this. He could have said, I'm too young. He could have said, wait a minute, I'm a foreigner in foreign lands, and you want me to be the second in position? He could have said, I've been in prison. Now you're going to put me in a place of leadership? He could have had all these kinds of excuses in his life. But Joseph immediately accepted the leadership position, and he went to work. You say, why is that? Well, we don't know exactly, but Proverbs 29.2 says, When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. I wonder if Joseph took that position because of his walk with God. He knew that if he didn't accept the position of leadership, then there would probably be a, a ruthless leader put in place, and he didn't know about the famine that was to come. But could you imagine Egypt being led through the famine by people who were not of God? What suffering they would have went through? I just wonder if God's walk with Joseph or Joseph's walk with God is so close. He's like, yep, you've put me in a place of leadership. I'm going to do it so that I can guide these people and they can know God's mighty hand. Psalm 75, 6 says, no one from the east or west or from the desert can exalt a man, but it is God who judges. He brings one down and he exalts the other. So at times, God lifts someone up and says, I'm putting you in this position. Joseph knew that God was exalting him. He accepts that role. I think he accepts the role with grace. So it's not wrong to desire to lead. But understand it's a difficult task. It's a very difficult task. And we need God's gifts. Mark 10, 41 says, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. So the ten other disciples hear that James and John make this special request. And so they get ticked. They're like, wait a minute. Why are you doing that? Why were the other disciples angry friends. Why were they upset about that? Was it because the two were being self-promoting and unspiritual maybe? That they're like promoting themselves? I don't think that's necessarily it. I think they were angry because James and John were trying to get ahead of them. James and John were trying to be first. They wanted the same position and power. And they're like realizing that and going, wait a minute, James and John, all 12 of us have been doing this together and now you're trying to get something greater? And so they get a little upset. Abraham Lincoln was once asked what was wrong with his two sons. The question was, why are they bickering? He said, the same thing is wrong with them that's wrong with the rest of the world. I have three walnuts and both want two. Isn't that life sometimes? They have what I want. And we're going to fight over it. There were only two seats besides Jesus and all twelve wanted one of the seats of influence. That's what makes for turmoil on a team. Well, I got to be the pitcher. I got to be the catcher. I got to be the quarterback. You know, everybody has a role. It's interesting as football season's gearing up, and you most know I'm a big football fan. Of course, my son's playing football. And so you watch as coaches figure out putting all these kids, and everybody has a very specific role. But what happens in our workplaces? Sometimes your employers are doing that. I've got to have you here and you here and you here because your abilities, well, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to be in that role. And it causes turmoils and challenges and backbiting. And what about in the church? Some people are gifted with kids, some are not. Some are gifted with music, some are not. Some are gifted with teaching, some are not. Some have gifts of mercy, some have gifts of helping, some have gifts of leadership. But what happens in the church if we don't understand we're all different people, all different gift mixes, then we start to backbite and start to argue and start to fight. And so there's a lesson here even within the church. Trusting God and his leadership in our lives. The 24th annual survey of high achievers in high school revealed that 78% admitted cheating regularly for grades. That's those who admitted it. Cheating. World Magazine reported that teachers are assisting students in SAT scores and padding attendance figures to enhance their record. It's a challenge. The question is, would we want a doctor or a pilot, a pharmacist who's bluffed their way through training, who cheated their way through the training? None of us want that. But see, sometimes leadership positions makes us do things that are not of God, and we sometimes presume, uh, presume or or chase after ways that would not be God-honoring. And like James and John, people want that prominence. It's a natural thing that we need to watch out for. And there's a warning in our text here that we don't go after things that are not of God. And we don't do what we can to climb that ladder. The problem is that some are willing to cheat, lie, manipulate, steal, and even forfeit their soul to get there. Don't do that in your workplace. Don't do that with your children. Don't do that with with your home. Don't do that with your wife. Don't do that with your husband. Honesty, 100% honesty in your homes, with your kids, in your workplace. Jesus gets to the main point though, and he lays out what it takes to lead like Jesus. Look what he says in verse uh, 42 and on. He says, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, he takes it and goes from them asking, can we be in this place of prominence? And he says, listen, if you want that, you better learn how to serve. And we live in a world where officials and leaders and businesses, they love to exercise authority, love to bark out orders, love to intimidate, love to threaten. Matter of fact, if you've noticed on, on the news yesterday, the breaking news about the Maryland football team, all these coaches now are going to be getting in trouble because of their, their threatening atmosphere. They're barking out order atmosphere. their controlling atmosphere. And worldly leaders tend to think many times that leadership means throwing your weight around. Have you ever worked for a boss who just loves to be in charge? You ever notice somebody who didn't have a title and now all of a sudden get a title? And how they change? And how because of their title, now they're insistent on, on their status and their, that you submit to them or to their authority? Jesus said, not so with you. Not so with us who are Christ's followers. Whoever wants to be great among you should be servant of all. Christian leadership is countercultural to our thinking. It's not about titles, it's not about position, it's about servanthood. Instead of lording over people, the godly leader seeks to serve those who are under him. And may I suggest, if you are under other people in leadership, you can also lead upward by serving, by taking on that servanthood mindset. Instead of demanding attention, the servant steps out of the spotlight and looks to make those who are leading good and those who are not leading good. Instead of making decisions based on image enhancement, the servant leader's decisions are based on what will enhance the organization or enhance the team or enhance the family. The servant leader doesn't demand respect. He earns respect. She earns respect simply because they walk the talk. And moms and dads, if we take servant leadership in our home, our children will want to follow that versus being demanding and lording over them because I'm mom or because I'm dad. Jesus Christ didn't just talk about servant leadership. He demonstrated that by getting down and dirty with some common people. Notice how how his unselfish thinking was evident in this same chapter of Mark's gospel when the parents brought the little children to him. Parents brought the little children for Jesus to bless them. Look at the text. It says, no, let the little children come to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God is like a little child, will never enter it. Disciples are like, get away. Children are coming, and Jesus is welcome. And disciples are like, Jesus, we have important things to do, depending on which gospel you look at. And Jesus is like, stop. Let's spend some time with these children. Jesus wasn't too busy for the kids. Here's the other thing that's real interesting, is these children really couldn't help Jesus further his mission. They weren't going to take up the role of carrying his kingdom into this world. They weren't going to sacrifice their lives. They were not going to help his image anyway. And Jesus stopped and says, listen, I, I love these kids. Let's stop for a few minutes and slow down. Jesus didn't give special favoritism to those who were the attractive or to those who were the rich and the famous, or to those who were the beautiful people. He didn't treat them any differently than the common people. Look at verse 17, Mark 10. A rich young ruler come to him, and a rich young ruler says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What he was asking is, Jesus, how much money is it going to take? I'll pull out my billfold. I'll pay my way. I'll make sure that I'll get there. I'll make sure I'll pay whatever you want, and I'll make sure it happens. And the disciples must have thought, now this guy, he gets it. He really understands that this guy, he can really help us. He can provide some special financing, some special banking to our kingdom efforts to work alongside Jesus. And look what Jesus says in verse 21. He said, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. He told the man, he said, get rid of all your riches and then you come back and follow me. The disciples must have been dumbfounded. They must have thought, what did we just witness? This guy is loaded And he can bring cash to the situation, and he can help us in expanding the kingdom. And Jesus told him to go away. Jesus never demanded that kind of sacrifice. He didn't want the money. Why was he making it so difficult for this man of influence? Because they didn't understand what Jesus was demonstrating. And Jesus looked at this rich young ruler, and he's pointing out, listen, here's the problem. This man loves his riches more than he loves God. And he thought that his riches could buy his way in the kingdom, buy his way into accomplishing God's work. Verse 22 says, At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. What it means is he couldn't let go of the money. Couldn't let go of the money in order to receive and follow Jesus. And Jesus didn't show favoritism. He didn't show that favoritism or special concessions to the rich. He could have very easily said, Ah, yeah, come on in here. We need you. We need your deep pockets. You're going to help us out. His standards were consistent with everyone. He was a servant leader, not an egotist who forced just on catering to the important. He served. Now, contrast, that response of Jesus' response to the rich young ruler with the response to the blind beggar at the end of chapter 10. Look at verse 46. As they came near, Jericho, a blind beggar, from the side of the road, began screaming to Jesus to help him, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. He was regarded as a nobody, but the pitiful man realized this was only his only chance, and he refused to be silenced. He barked even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. He was brought to Jesus, and the Lord answered, What do you want for me for you to do? He said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. You see the counterculture of thinking in Jesus? He let the rich man walk away, and he searched out the poor beggar. You come on over here. He served those who couldn't return the favor. There's nothing he knew he was going to get out of that blind beggar. Nothing. He served those who were in need, even though they couldn't give anything in return. The heart of servanthood you see in Jesus. See, if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to think countercultural. We need to think with that heart of servanthood. How do I serve my wife today? How do I serve my husband today? How do I serve my kids today? How do I serve my boss today? Yes, even the boss that drives you crazy and makes your life miserable. How do I serve them? How do I put on that that towel of servanthood, the idea of Jesus washing feet? How do I do that? See, we don't lead to accumulate more money or more power or more attention. We lead for the benefit of others. And the benefit we want them to know is we want them to know Jesus so where you're planted at today, whether you're in a place of high position of leadership or rather you're just one of the gophers at the job, no matter where you're at, you have an opportunity to lead, influence people towards Jesus Christ. We give ourselves up for those who need that kind of assistance, that kind of a direction. The amazing thing is the more we lead like Jesus, the more effective our leadership becomes. The more we're willing to serve, the more effective we'll be in speaking and sharing Jesus. Jesus is that perfect example of a servant leader. His greatest act of service, the willingness to go to the cross, the willingness to die on a cross for the sins of the world. He didn't die a martyr's death, but he died a substitution death. He died deliberately substituting for your sins and my sins. He dies on that cross See, true Christ-like leadership has that kind of sacrifice mindset, that I am willing to go even to the point of death for somebody. That's what Jesus did for you and me. So I want to encourage you, church, as you think about leading, leading from whatever position you're in, whether you have a title or no title, do it like Jesus. Choose to be a servant to those who God puts in your life where you can influence people towards Jesus Christ.